0: Chapter twenty one of Scrambles amongst the Alps by Edward Wimper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty one The Ascent of the Matterhorn. We started from Zermatt on the thirteenth of July at half past five on a brilliant and perfectly cloudless morning. We were eight in number Croz, old Pater and his two sons, Lord Francis Douglas, Haddo, Hudson, and I. Two footnotes. First footnote. The two young Taugwalders were taken as porters by desire of their father, and carried provisions amply sufficient for three days, in case the ascent should prove more troublesome than we anticipated. End of first footnote. Second footnote. I remember speaking about pedestrianism to a well-known mountaineer some years ago, and ventured to remark that a man who has averaged thirty miles a day might be considered a good walker a fair walker he said a fair walker what then would you consider good walking well he replied i will tell you some time back a friend and i agreed to go to switzerland but a short time afterward he wrote me to say he ought to let me know that a young and delicate lad was going with him who would not be equal to great things in fact he would not be able to do more than fifty miles a day what became of the young and delicate lad he lives and who was your extraordinary friend charles hudson i have every reason to believe that the gentlemen referred to were equal to walking more than fifty miles a day but they were exceptional, not good, pedestrians. Charles Hudson, vicar of Skillington in Lincolnshire, was considered by the mountaineering fraternity to be the best amateur of his time. He was the organiser and leader of the party of Englishmen who ascended Mont Blanc by the Aiguille du Goutet, and who descended by the Grand-Mulet route without guides in 1855. His long practice made him sure-footed and in that respect he was not greatly inferior to a born mountaineer. I remember him as a well-made man of middle height and age, neither stout nor thin, with face pleasant though grave, and with quiet, unassuming manners. Although an athletic man, he would have been overlooked in a crowd, and although he had done the greatest mountaineering feats which have been done, he was the last man to speak of his own doings. His friend, a Mr. Haddo, was a young man of nineteen, who had the looks and manners of a greater age he was a rapid walker but eighteen sixty five was his first season in the alps lord francis douglas was about the same age as mr haddo he had the advantage of several seasons in the alps he was nimble as a deer and was becoming an expert mountaineer just before our meeting he had ascended the Obergabelhorn with old pater and josef fienin and this gave me a high opinion of his powers For I had examined that mountain all round a few weeks before, and had declined its ascent on account of its apparent difficulty. My personal acquaintance with Mr. Hudson was very slight. Still, I should have been content to have placed myself under his orders if he had chosen to claim the position to which he was entitled. Those who knew him will not be surprised to learn that, so far from doing this he lost no opportunity in consulting the wishes and opinions of those around him we deliberated together whenever there was occasion and our authority was recognized by the others whatever responsibility there was devolved upon us i recollect with satisfaction that there was no difference of opinion between us as to what should be done and that the most perfect harmony existed between all of us so long as we were together End of second footnote. To ensure steady motion, one tourist and one native walked together. The youngest Taugwalder fell to my share, and the lad marched well, proud to be on the expedition, and happy to show his powers. The wine bags also fell to my lot to carry, and throughout the day, after each drink, I replenished them secretly with water, so that at the next halt they were found fuller than before. This was considered a good omen, and little short of miraculous. On the first day we did not intend to ascend to any great height, and we mounted accordingly very leisurely, picked up the things which were left in the chapel at the Schwarze at eight-twenty, and proceeded thence along the ridge connecting the Hernley with the Matterhorn. At half-past eleven we arrived at the base of the actual peak, then quitted the ridge, and clambered round some ledges on to the eastern face. We were now fairly upon the mountain, and were astonished to find that places which from the Riffel, or even from the Furgengletcher, looked entirely impracticable, were so easy that we could run about. Before twelve o'clock we had found a good position for the tent, at a height of eleven thousand feet. Footnote. Thus far the guides did not once go to the front, Hudson or I led, and when any cutting was required we did it ourselves. This was done to spare the guides, and to show them that we were thoroughly in earnest. The spot at which we camped was just four hours walking from Zermatt. Croes and young Peter went on to see what was above, in order to save time on the following morning. They cut across the heads of the snow-slopes which descended towards the Fulgen Glacier, and disappeared round a corner— but shortly afterward we saw them high up on the face, moving quickly. We others made a solid platform for the tent in a well protected spot, and then watched eagerly for the return of the men. The stones which they upset told us that they were very high, and we supposed that the way must be easy. At length, just before three p.m., we saw them coming down, evidently much excited. What are they saying, peter? Gentlemen, they say it is no good but when they came near we heard a different story nothing but what was good not a difficulty not a single difficulty we could have gone to the summit and returned to-day easily we passed the remaining hours of daylight some basking in the sunshine some sketching or collecting and when the sun went down giving as it departed a glorious promise for the morrow we returned to the tent to arrange for the night hudson made tea i coffee and we then retired each one to his blanket-bag, the Taugwalders, Lord Francis Douglas and myself, occupying the tent, the others remaining, by preference, outside. Long after dusk, the cliffs above echoed with our laughter and with the songs of the guides, for we were happy that night in camp, and feared no evil. We assembled together outside the tent before dawn on the morning of the 14th, and started directly it was light enough to move, young peter came on with us as a guide and his brother returned to zermatt we followed the route which had been taken on the previous day and in a few minutes turned the rib which had intercepted the view of the eastern face from our tent platform the whole of this great slope was now revealed rising for three thousand feet like a huge natural staircase some parts were more and others were less easy but we were not once brought to a halt by any serious impediment for when an obstruction was met in front it could always be turned to the right or to the left. For the greater part of the way there was indeed no occasion for the rope, and sometimes Hudson led, sometimes myself. At six-twenty we had attained a height of twelve thousand eight hundred feet, and halted for half an hour. We then continued the ascent without a break until nine-fifty-five, when we stopped for fifty minutes at a height of fourteen thousand feet. Twice we struck the north-eastern ridge, and followed it for some little distance, to no advantage, for it was usually more rotten and steep, and always more difficult than the face. Still we kept near to it, lest stones perchance should fall. We had now arrived at the foot of that part, which from the Riffelberg, or from Zermatt, seems perpendicular or overhanging, and could no longer continue upon the eastern side. For a little distance we ascended by snow upon the arete, that is, the ridge, descending towards Zermatt, and then by common consent turned over to the right or to the northern side. Before doing so, we made a change in the order of ascent. Croz went first, I followed, Hudson came third, Haddo and Old Pater were last. Now, said Crose, as he led off, now for something altogether different. The work became difficult and required caution. In some places there was little to hold, and it was desirable that those should be in front who were the least likely to slip. The general slope of the mountain at this part was less than forty degrees, and snow had accumulated in and had filled up the interstices of the rock face, leaving only occasional fragments projecting here and there. These were at times covered with a thin film of ice produced from the melting and refreezing of the snow. It was the counterpart, on a small scale, of the upper seven hundred feet of the pointe des Ecrins, Only there was this material difference. The face of the ecrins was about, or exceeded, an angle of fifty degrees, and the Matterhorn face was less than forty degrees. It was a place over which any fair mountaineer might pass in safety, and Mr. Hudson ascended this part, and as far as I know the entire mountain, without having the slightest assistance rendered to him on any occasion. Sometimes after I had taken a hand from Croze, or received a pull, I turned to offer the same to Hudson, but he invariably declined, saying it was not necessary. Mr. Haddo, however, was not accustomed to this kind of work, and required continual assistance. It is only fair to say that the difficulty which he found at this part arose simply and entirely from want of experience. This solitary difficult part was of no great extent. We bore away over it at first nearly horizontally, for a distance of about four hundred feet, and then ascended directly toward the summit for about sixty feet, and then doubled back to the ridge which descends toward Zermatt. A long stride round a rather awkward corner brought us to snow once more. The last doubt vanished, the Matterhorn was ours. Nothing but two hundred feet of easy snow remained to be surmounted. You must now carry your thoughts back to the seven Italians who started from Breuil on the eleventh of July. Four days had passed since their departure, and we were tormented with anxiety lest they should arrive on the top before us. All the way up we had talked of them, and many false alarms of men on the summit had been raised. The higher we rose, the more intense became the excitement. What if we should be beaten at the last moment? The slope eased off, at length we could be detached, and Croz and I, dashing away, ran a neck-and-neck race which ended in a dead heat. At one forty p.m. the world was at our feet, and the Matterhorn was conquered. Hurrah! Not a footstep could be seen. It was not yet certain that we had not been beaten the summit of the Matterhorn was formed of a rudely level ridge, about three hundred and fifty feet long, and the Italians might have been at its farther extremity. The highest points are toward the two ends. In 1865 the northern end was slightly higher than the southern one. In bygone years Carrel and I often suggested to each other that we might one day arrive upon the top and find ourselves cut off from the very highest point, by a notch in the summit ridge, which is seen from the Théodule and from Breuil. This notch is very conspicuous from below, but when one is actually upon the summit, it is hardly noticed, and it can be passed without the least difficulty. End of footnote I hastened to the southern end, scanning the snow right and left eagerly. Hurrah again! It was untrodden! Where were the men? I peered over the cliff, half doubting, half expectant. I saw them immediately, mere dots on the ridge at an immense distance below. Up went my arms and my hat. Cause, cause, come here. Where are they, monsieur? There. Don't you see them down there? Ah, the coquins! They are low down. Cause, we must make those fellows hear us. We yelled until we were hoarse. The Italian seemed to regard us. We could not be certain. Cause, we must make them hear us. They shall hear us. I seized a block of rock and hurled it down and called upon my companion in the name of friendship to do the same. We drove our sticks in and prized away the crags, and soon a torrent of stones poured down the cliffs. There was no mistake about it this time. The Italians turned and fled. Footnote. I have learned since from J. A. Carrel that they heard our first cries. They were then upon the southwest ridge, close to the cravate. AND TWELVE HUNDRED AND FIFTY FEET BELOW US AS THE CROW FLIES, AT A DISTANCE OF ABOUT ONE-THIRD OF A MILE. End footnote. STILL I WOULD THAT THE LEADER OF THAT PARTY COULD HAVE STOOD WITH US AT THAT MOMENT, FOR OUR VICTORIOUS SHOUTS CONVEYED TO HIM THE DISAPPOINTMENT OF THE AMBITION OF A LIFETIME. HE WAS THE MAN OF ALL THOSE WHO ATTEMPTED THE ASCENT OF THE MATTERHORN, WHO MOST DESERVED TO BE THE FIRST UPON ITS SUMMIT he was the first to doubt its inaccessibility and he was the only man who persisted in believing that its ascent could be accomplished it was the aim of his life to make the ascent from the side of italy for the honour of his native valley for a time he had the game in his hands he played it as he thought best but he made a false move and lost it times have changed with Carrel. his supremacy is questioned in the val New men have arisen, and he is no longer recognized as THE chasseur above all others. But so long as he remains the man that he is to-day, it will not be easy to find his superior. The others had arrived, so we went back to the northern end of the ridge. Coz now took the tent-pole and planted it in the highest snow. FOOTNOTE At our departure the men were confident that the ascent would be made, and took one of the poles out of the tent. I protested that it was tempting providence. They took the pole nevertheless. End of footnote Yes, we said, there is the flagstaff, but where is the flag? Here it is, he answered, pulling off his blouse and fixing it to the stick. It made a poor flag, and there was no wind to float it out, yet it was seen all around. They saw it at Zermatt, at the Riffel, in the val Tournanche, At Breuil the watchers cried, Victory is ours! They raised bravos for Carrel and vivas for Italy, and hastened to put themselves en fete. On the morrow they were undeceived. All was changed. The explorers returned sad, cast down, disheartened, confounded, gloomy. It is true, said the men, we saw them ourselves. They hurled stones at us the old traditions are true there are spirits on the top of the matterhorn footnote signor giordano was naturally disappointed at the result and wished the men to start again they all refused to do so with the exception of jean antoine upon the sixteenth of july he sat out again with three others and upon the seventeenth gained the summit by passing at first up the southwest west ridge and afterward by turning over to the Tsmut, or north-western side. On the eighteenth he returned to Breuil. Whilst we were on the southern end of the summit ridge, we paid some attention to the portion of the mountain which intervened between ourselves and the Italian guides. It seemed as if there would not be the least chance for them if they should attempt to storm the final peak directly from the end of the shoulder. In that direction cliffs fell sheer down from the summit, and we were unable to see beyond a certain distance. There remained the route about which Carel and I had often talked, namely, to ascend directly at first from the end of the shoulder, and afterward to swerve to the left, that is, to the Tzmut side, and to complete the ascent from the north-west. When we were upon the summit we laughed at this idea. The part of the mountain that I have described upon page 619 was not easy, although its inclination was moderate. If that slope were made only ten degrees steeper, its difficulty would be enormously increased. To double its inclination would be to make it impracticable. The slope at the southern end of the summit ridge— falling toward the northwest was much steeper than that over which we had passed, and we ridiculed the idea that any person should attempt to ascend it in that direction when the northern route was so easy. Nevertheless, the summit was reached by that route by the undaunted Carrel. From knowing the final slope over which he passed, and from the account of Mr. F. C. Grove, who is the only traveller by whom it has been traversed i do not hesitate to term the ascent of carel and biche in eighteen sixty five the most desperate piece of mountain scrambling upon record in eighteen sixty nine i asked carel if he had ever done anything more difficult his reply was man cannot do anything much more difficult than that end of footnote. we returned to the southern end of the ridge to build a cairn and then paid homage to the view. The summit ridge was much shattered, although not so extensively as the southwest and northeast ridges. The highest rock in 1865 was a block of mica schist, and the fragment I broke off it not only possesses in a remarkable degree the character of the peak, but mimics in an astonishing manner the details of its form. See illustration on page 622. End of footnote. The day was one of those superlatively calm and clear ones, which usually precede bad weather. The atmosphere was perfectly still, and free from all clouds or vapours. Mountains fifty, day a hundred miles off, looked sharp and near. All their details, ridge and crag, snow and glacier, stood out with faultless definition. Pleasant thoughts of happy days and bygone years came up unbidden as we recognized the old familiar forms all were revealed not one of the principal peaks of the alps was hidden footnote it is most unusual to see the southern half of the panorama unclouded a hundred ascents may be made before this will be the case again end of footnote i see them clearly now the great inner circle of giants backed by the ranges, chains, and massifs. First came the Domblanche, Blanche, hoary and grand, the gabelhorn and pointed rothorn, and then the peerless weishorn, the towering michabelhörner, flanked by the allaleinhorn, Strahlhorn, and ribfischhorn, then Monte Rosa with its many spitzes, the lyscam and the brighthorn. Behind were the Bernese Oberland, Governed by the Finsterarhorn, the saint Simplon, and the Saint Gotthard groups, the Disgrazia, and the Ortela. Toward the south, we looked down to Kivasso, on the plain of Piedmont, and far beyond. The Viso, one hundred miles away, seemed close upon us. The maritime Alps, one hundred and thirty miles distant, were free from haze. Then came my first love, the Pelvoux, the Ecrin, and the Meige, the clusters of the Gryans. And lastly in the west, gorgeous in the full sunlight, rose the monarch of all, Mont Blanc. Ten thousand feet beneath us were the green fields of Zermatt, dotted with chalets, from which blue smoke rose lazily. Eight thousand feet below, on the other side, were the pastures of Breuil. There were forests, black and gloomy, and meadows, bright and lively, bounding waterfalls and tranquil lakes, fertile lands and savage wastes sunny plains and frigid plateaus. There were the most rugged forms and the most graceful outlines, bold perpendicular cliffs and gentle undulating slopes, rocky mountains and snowy mountains, sombre and solemn or glittering and white, with walls, turrets, pinnacles, pyramids, domes, cones, and spires. There was every combination that the world can give, and every contrast that the heart could desire. We remained on the summit for one hour, one crowded hour of glorious life. It passed away too quickly, and we began to prepare for the descent. End of chapter 21